why you're here then. I've come to see the difference between you and me. The difference, yeah? Right. What do you know? I grew up poor, like you. Yeah. I bossed as a lad, like you. But it didn't turn me into a thief. But it did turn you into policing, didn't it? Yeah. It did turn you into handing your own over at the bar, didn't it? You know, the difference between us, right, <clears throat> apart from, you know, the obvious, that is that I, right, I work for me. And you, you work for them. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we are watching 2015's Legend, starring Tom Hardy, Emily Browning, and Taron Edgerton. This movie is directed by Brian Helgeland. It is written by Brian Helgeland and John Pearson, who wrote the book that this movie is based on. We are watching this movie because it stars Tom Hardy as the two title roles of Reggie and Ronald Cray. It's interesting that you call them both the title role because, as we will discuss in a few minutes, our expectations of the movie, my expectation is that we will discover that one of them is a legend and the other one less so. And we will discover which one is more legendary. Gotcha. Well, the short summary of the movie based on what IMDb says is that Identical twin gangsters Ronald and Reginald Cray terrorize London during the 1960s. Now, we just watched the trailer, mm-hmm. which it seems like there's more than that. It's not just that they're going around being gangsters. It's like they're trying to do something. There's this goal, something about London becoming the Las Vegas of Europe. And then there are wedding scenes involving Emily Browning and one of the Crays. I couldn't keep them straight. Thank goodness they put glasses on one of them. Yeah. Pretty sure glasses is Ronnie. <laughs> Because they definitely pointed out that one of the brothers is like the face and one of the brothers is the muscle. One is more aggressive than the other and one is more calculating. So watching more than just the three and a half minute trailer will probably give me a good idea of who's who. They went to great lengths in the trailer to assign personalities to the two of them. And I suspect that we will be surprised that that's not entirely accurate. Mm -hmm. I think roles are going to switch around during the movie, and it'll be perhaps a surprise to see who ends up on top. Now, I'm expecting to like this movie, and I know like the tone I just used <laughs> does not inspire a lot of confidence. I will admit that. But so far, everything I've seen Tom Hardy in, I've enjoyed. Inception, Bronson was really good. Ooh, it was really good. Taboo was really fun to watch. It was. Like, I haven't seen Venom. We haven't sat down and watched that yet. But like so far, Tom Hardy is pretty solid in his performances. Oh, for sure. For sure. Emily Browning, I've only seen her in a few things. She was in American Gods on HBO. Was that on HBO or Stars? I can never remember. 
You know, I can't remember either. But she was good in that show. I think she was also in... What was that fantasy shoot 'em up Yeah. Orphanage movie. I have no idea. I mean, that doesn't bode well for the memorability of the movie, but I can I don't remember the movie. I never yeah. even saw it. We know that it exists. It was called Sucker Punch yes. in 2011. She was also in 2011's Sleeping Beauty, which also had Hugh Key's burn in it. That I, one scene. Part of me still wants to see that movie. <laughs> I don't think... If it's the criteria of a hiatus movie, especially since we have so many movies that better fit that we're just never going to get to, mm-hmm. that we would love to. But I think I want to see it anyways. Okay. Well, you do like to take naps during movies. So yeah. I think Sleeping Beauty would probably fit that mark based on what I've seen the reviews for. But <laughs> we're not here to talk about Sleeping Beauty. We are here to talk about Legend. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break. I'm going to play the trailer for everybody. And then when we come back, we will dive into Legend and let you know what we think of it. Do you like being a gangster? London in the 1960s. Everyone had a story about the craze. They were twins. Do you think we look alike? (laughs) Reggie was a gangster prince of the East End. Ron Cray was a one-man mob. Your brother is a violent, paranoid schizophrenic. What I'm trying to tell you is that he's off his rocker. Well, no, 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 no. It was time for the craze to enter gangster legend. London is going to be the Las Vegas of Europe. We need someone to front and someone to muscle. Salud. Come to Philadelphia. It's a nice girl. We'll get it for you. I prefer boys. Italians. Sometimes great, but I am not prejudiced. <laughs> you got some balls to admit that, kid. Me and my brother, we're going to rule London. We could go straight. Life is not always the way we want it to be. Things are getting completely out of control, and the American Mafia may also be involved. What exactly are you doing about it? We're going after the craze. You won't mind if I fight back, will you? Crime is a business. You don't want a war. I do, actually. Listen to yourself, you nuts! You hit me. Yeah. That. I come here for a proper shootout. A shootout, right? It's a shootout. Like a western. <laughs> Your brother, he's a loose cannon. We need you to do something about Ron. I can't do that. He's my brother. And we're back. So, Julia, we'll start with you. What are your initial reactions after finishing Legend? I enjoyed it. It wasn't quite what I expected, mm-hmm. but in a fine way, not in any sort of disappointing way. I really enjoyed it. How about you? I was actually surprised by how sad the ending was. I'm not 
an expert on crime dramas or anything like that, but when I'm going into it expecting Scarface, where at the end of the movie, sure, I was open to the idea of the craze like getting mowed down, but the idea was that like it would happen in a blaze of glory, and I think I forgot that it was based on a true story. And in true stories, you don't have massive gunfights with cartels invading mansions and things like that. No, like, you don't. These guys were going to go down in the most mundane way possible because it's the real world that this movie is set in. But it was sad. Like, the people that we had gotten to know over the two-plus-hour runtime, nobody came out well in the end. Although, the police inspector came out pretty well. Yeah, Nipper? Nipper, yeah. Nipper. Because even the guy that turned pigeon for the cops, I mean, he still got blasted in the leg with a gun. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I was surprised by how sad the ending was, but all in all, it was very entertaining, for sure, to see the different ins and outs of these relationships. But getting into some of the major observations that we had about the film. Francis's voiceover, because yeah. we both had comments on it. And that's what opens the film and Absolutely. what closes the film. Yeah. So all throughout the movie, Francis Shea, who is played by Emily Browning, Emily Browning is speaking to us. And the normal film tendency is that if you have someone in voiceover, that means they survive to the end of the film. So the whole time we're watching, there's all this crime happening and we're hearing Francis speaking to us. And so we're thinking, OK, all of this bad stuff is happening everywhere. But it, hey, you know what? Francis is a good person. She is fairly innocent in all of this because she doesn't participate in the bad stuff that's happening. She's just on the periphery of it. And so there's a lot of hope there. My point of view of the voiceover and what that means for the character throughout the film, I agree with you. We're on the same page about that. I think mine has a little bit more nuance to it. Mm -hmm. That if she's narrating the story for us, that means she must have been present for those events to be able to narrate them to us. And obviously that was not true. Mm. That kind of brought me to the concept of, is Francis a reliable narrator? Why Francis and not one of the Krays? Frankly, the Krays are not reliable narrators. <laughs> Neither of them. Ron is a diagnosed sociopath. This is known. This is established at the beginning. Reggie, he's just not much better off. He just hides it better, I think. And we see glimpses of that throughout the movie, him losing control in little ways and then in increasing ways throughout the movie. I'm not 100% sure Frances is an entirely reliable narrator, but she's better than the other two. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah, she's not quite as deeply embedded in the fraternal relationship. Like she has the benefit of coming in later in life. So that way she doesn't have a lot of that emotional baggage as far as sugarcoating the things that Ron does when Reggie's talking about him. She seems to flip-flop an awful lot, which is incredibly natural, mm. about how she feels about him and her point of view when it comes to Ron and the amount of involvement that Ron has in her own life. Sometimes he is very frightening and very intimidating and nasty to her. And then sometimes he does these little things that I'm sure have ulterior motives, but they at least appear to be almost sweet. Yeah. And supportive. I'm thinking specifically of when he meets her outside her apartment when she's leaving Reggie. And he takes her bag and he's really sweet about it. She's like, no, 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 no. I got it. He's like, seriously, look at me and look at you. Give me a bag. 
which was funny. (laughs) And then, you know, she gives him a kiss on the cheek and gets in the car. And I was afraid the whole time that they were having that conversation, I was afraid that he was going to do something to her, that he wasn't going to let her leave. Yeah. But he did. He basically like, okay, go get in the car. It's time for you to go, which definitely I think had ulterior motives, but it was a sweet scene anyway. Yeah. It's just frankly crazy how many things happen around Francis and how over the course of the movie we see it wear on her. At the end of the movie, she overdoses on pills rather than getting back together with Reggie. Yes. I think she recognizes that there is no way out. She has witnessed what he can do Mm -hmm. and how he sees his empire. Nobody gets out. He was, what, two weeks after getting back from their honeymoon before he started doing crim stuff again? Yes. (laughs) So she knows that her options are so limited. She can go back to him and probably die of an overdose anyways. She can run and... One of his goons will probably track her down mm-hmm. and either bring her back and we're back to scenario A or kill her. Or she can have a modicum of control and make a choice that is hers alone. And that's what she did. Yeah, it's really tragic and it really surprised me. And what's crazy about it surprising me is that Emily Browning in her voiceover straight up says, I bet you're thinking that because I've been telling you this story that I get out okay. Yes, And then she doesn't. And she doesn't. Okay, if anything, her taking her own life in this narrative probably makes her an even better narrator because if, you know, we start getting into supernatural rules of things. Oh, totally. She's like a ghost. Yeah, she goes from (laughs) having a certain point of view, her own point of view, where she really doesn't get to see everything, to an omniscient point of view. Mm Mm-hmm. Where she's no longer tied to a certain person who sees certain things at certain times. She just is. Emily Browning has a good voice for voiceover. She does. I enjoyed her very much. She stuck a good middle ground between having the right accent and not having it too heavy. Ooh, yeah. There were a lot of heavy accents in this movie. And she was very understandable when she spoke. Yes. Yes, she was. (laughs) I would like to keep talking about Frances. Mm -hmm. One of my other points that I wanted to discuss was her history. And there's a lot of surmising things because we get zero history out of her. Yeah. All we know is that she goes to like typing secretary school. We don't even know if she finished, if she continued after she met Reggie. We don't know any of that. Mm -hmm. So I have a little bit of a theory. My theory is that Frances had recently been institutionalized. That's right. She's described as fragile on multiple on instances. On multiple occasions. And the thing that kind of gave it away for me, I, I had already suspected that maybe she had a history of mental illness. But really what gave it away to me was in that scene in the club where Ron and Reggie are fighting, one of the tipping points was Ron goading Frances. Mm-hmm. And saying, you're fragile, aren't you? And then he said something to Reggie about her mother selling him like damaged goods. Yeah, I remember hearing that. So there was that. And then what really sold it for me was when they're both now down on the floor and they're whispering to each other kind of. And this is like their reconciliation, like we're brothers and we love each other anyways moment. Mm -hmm. Ron says, I'm fragile too. 
and we know Ron's history. Yeah. So I think that was the link. I think that she has a history of mental illness, and I think she's been institutionalized. That is another reason why her mom would be so protective of her. So protective. I mean, to say nothing of walking around looking like Emily Browning, she's like, what, five foot one? You you looked it up? Yeah, she's five foot one. Tiny little fair-faced person like that, easily overpowered physically for sure. Oh, yeah. And if she's fragile like that, emotionally too, the scene towards the end where things really fall apart with Reggie and Francis when they're out in the rain and she's trying to put the car cover up on her convertible because it's pouring rain and she's mm-hmm. struggling and struggling and he just shows up drunk. Like, there's nothing good about that scene. No. it's ugh, It was deeply troubling just to see her stuck in this situation really hard. I really thought that that scene was going to be a reconciliation moment for them that he got out of the car and was going to go help her and they were going to do it together. Mm-hmm. Wow. He had no intentions of doing anything even remotely kind. Yeah. He got out of the car purely to antagonize her. It was very disturbing. Yeah. I mean, the entire scene and how it ended. Yes, it ended with him raping her. But the whole thing, it was very, very sad. Her story as a whole has some bright spots. There were times where Reggie was very charming and was seemingly genuine with how he was treating her and the way he was wooing her. But she did that thing that writers will put in their stories where her whole thing, like the entirety of her existence is, oh, I can change him. And then when she finds out that she can't change him, things go downhill. They don't spend any time in this movie doing anything with... Francis, other than showing her as the object of Reggie's affection and her thinking that she can change him. And there's so much more that could have been done with her because when you break right down to it, there are three characters in this movie, Ronnie, Reggie, and Francis. And they do a really good job of showing Ronnie and Reggie as multidimensional, but they kind of shortchange Francis. I think that was probably by design. Yeah, I could see that. Well, frankly, no, it probably wasn't by design because that's just how women are portrayed in movies. Yeah. But I think it does serve the story that to Reggie, she was one dimensional. To Reggie, her past didn't really matter. Mm -hmm. People kept telling him that she's fragile and he never agreed or asked follow up questions. They never had a conversation about how she grew up, her childhood, how things were, what she's been doing. They never even really talk about her going to secretary school. Just the fact that she is, which we never actually get to see. So even though Francis is the narrator, we still only get to see Francis from Reggie's point of view, Mm -hmm. which is part of their complicated relationship. Yeah. And definitely she has certain feelings about Reggie considering her last few days. I think it actually had been weeks that she'd been hiding from him. Yeah. It had been a couple weeks that she'd been hiding from him. So considering the last events of her life and why she chose to kill herself, I think that might explain why she's only telling us anything about herself that relates to Reggie, which is another level of dark. Mm -hmm. It really is. Just oof. Oof is the... Mm -hmm. Because I lack any other words to, to describe that situation. Ronnie Reggie, 
the other two leads in the story. Mm -hmm. They are the title characters. They are the legendary Cray twins played at the same time by Tom Hardy, which the first thing on my list of things to bring up was the fact that Tom Hardy played each brother so distinctly that it was genuinely impressive. It was. And I have a question about that. So we watched one of the behind the scenes vignettes and it made it sound like Tom Hardy would flip flop back and forth. Yeah. Like pretty consistently when each character was needed. Throughout the movie, I kept questioning to myself and I'm still not sure of the answer. Well, no, I am sure of the answer. I thought that Ronnie looked like he had more poundage on him mm-hmm. and Reggie looked thinner. So I assumed that he did one role completely, packed on 20 pounds, and did the other one. (laughs) But apparently not. Do you see what I see? I think so. And I think it comes right down to the fact that when Tom Hardy was doing Ronnie, and I will admit, I told them apart at the beginning because Ronnie wore glasses and glasses are round like an O. Okay. That's how I told them apart initially. Yeah. But Ronnie carried himself differently. He absolutely did. Posture, dress, for sure. And posture and how you hold your head are two things that can drastically change someone's outline and silhouette, which are obviously the same thing. But you can change your silhouette drastically enough that you can just look physically heavier, lighter. Ronnie was always wearing those more, I guess, I don't want to say schlubby type clothes, but his Reggie was always tailored. Yeah, Ronnie's style was a little bit bulkier. Mm-hmm. He always wore what I think are double-breasted suits. So the fronts actually overlap and button and then wide ties. Mm-hmm. And he often wore an overcoat. And he, he did. He, he um, kind of hunched over. And then, yeah, Reggie, his suits, like you said, are, were much more tailored. His tie was always straight, narrow black. And their haircuts, once you took all the product... Out of them, they were probably very similar. Actually, yeah. they were probably exactly the same because Tom Hardy can't keep getting haircuts. So they were probably the exact same haircut. But that goes to show what a different styling makes because their haircuts look completely different. Yeah. Reggie was always very slicked back, very combed. Mm-hmm. Ronnie was able to get a little bit more disheveled looking. What really drove me to think that Reggie was actually carrying less weight than Ronnie was his face. Mm. Ronnie, I keep calling him Ronnie. It's Ron. He never Ron. goes by Ronnie. Because <laughs> it's Ronnie and Reggie. Anywho, yeah, okay. Ron, with the way he holds his mouth, mm-hmm. he's in a perpetual frown. So it makes him jowly. Yeah. Because he's always pulling these muscles down. So he looks jowly around the mouth. Yeah, he's doing this thing where like his bottom lip, his bottom lip is also is always like really low. Yeah. Like showing off his bottom teeth. Yes. And I noticed that right away. Like when he talks, you see his bottom gums. Yeah. And it's uh, very low. There were multiple occasions where Tom Hardy slipped in just a little bit into his old Bane voice <laughs> from The Dark Knight Rises. And he never went full on like, oh, day of your reckoning or something like that. But it it was just trying to eke out so, so much. His accent got very like... Slip and sliding just around all over the place. Like, <laughs> words are no longer words. It's, yeah, it was very, uh, it was very interesting. It made a lot of sense for Ron, though. It did. It really did. And then Reggie's face 
looked so much more chiseled. Mm-hmm. And it made him look younger. Man, there were so many instances in this movie where Reggie was legitimately charming and put together and you could understand how he could like talk around a situation. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it makes the fall from grace at the end of the movie so much harder because for most of the movie, you're like on their side. And then you see Reggie's descent into full on gangster mode, alcohol abuse, spousal abuse, the terrible things that he does. I mean, yeah, it's bad. Was there a moment for you where you decided you could no longer be on his side? Oh, absolutely. When he came home drunk, antagonized Francis, and then beat and raped her. So, see, it was earlier for me. When it became clear, there was a bit of a montage Mm -hmm. of what married life was like. She was telling us. Yeah. When it became clear that he no longer cared about her happiness or comfort. Mm Mm-hmm. That's when I saw the descent beginning because we saw that montage from her point of view. Rarely was Reg even in that montage. It was just her living in this flat being miserable. And it became clear that these glamorous nights out and, you know, dressing up and going out, those days were over. Mm -hmm. Because frankly, she's now a liability. So that was the turning point for me. Okay. I think I was still on board with Reggie at that point because he was just going out and doing the things that he was doing before he married Francis. And I don't know, people don't change unless they want to change. And I think what he wanted out of that relationship was just her on his arm looking sort of thing. And when he was doing gangster stuff, he put her to the side and that's what they did all during the courtship thing. And so I guess I wasn't surprised when it started happening once they were married. Yeah. But yeah, once he started getting like abusive, I was like, Oh no. Yeah. Can't get behind that. And I mean, it's not that long after Francis takes her life that he just goes completely off the rails in a way that we had only seen Ronnie do before. Sorry, Ron. before. <laughs> I think I was most impressed by Tom Hardy's performance in the scene after Reggie gets out of jail and goes to the club and finds it in complete, you know, in a complete hole. Yes, that scene was really quite something. The whole thing, all sorts of different aspects. Of course, Tom Hardy's performance, he's fighting himself and he had to film that twice from each point of view. And that's some serious talent. Yeah. I really liked in the featurette that we watched how they went through the scene and they had Tom Hardy record all of the Ron part of the scene. And then as he was playing against the body double as Reggie, they were playing Ron's audio in his ear. That way he could interrupt himself. Yeah, that was really clever. It's not something that people who are starting out with the whole split screen editing style of like putting themselves on either side, they don't always think, okay, well, in a normal conversation, people overlap the other person. Yeah, and it's really hard to fake that. Mm -hmm. It's really hard. I can't remember. Oh, never mind. (laughs) But no, I, I really liked how by the end of the movie, I didn't need the glasses to tell them apart. The mannerisms that we had seen over the course of the movie were distinct enough that I didn't have to rely on physical signifiers to be able to tell them apart. I really enjoyed that. I'm glad that they gave us those signals 
because it's really important when it was Reg and when it was Ron. Mm -hmm. That was integral to the story. Absolutely. So they made it not hard for us to learn those mannerisms, learn those differences of appearance. And based on the featurette, Tom Hardy went all in when it came to being in one persona versus the other persona. There were multiple people they were interviewing where they were saying that when Tom slipped into Ron, that they were made nervous by his presence. Mm -hmm. Just that thing, that little, those little things that he did to bring that character to life would like physically put people on edge. And it kind of reminded me of when Jared Leto was being the Joker and he tried to do all of these Joker-like things and he came off as looking like an absolute a-hole. And he didn't do any of the, I guess, psychological things that he obviously set out to do because he was just playing at it. There's this mythology, I think, mm. about these very method actors and what they learn and what they become capable of before their parts and they lose themselves sometimes and sometimes they just end up being really amazing. Keanu Reeves mm. is a is a good example of that. For John Wick, I mm -hmm. think it was. He really learned how to use all the weaponry that he uses in the movies and, and all that kind of stuff. He learned a lot of the fight sequences. It, he did a lot of it himself. And of course, Tom Cruise is a famous example of that. And I call it a mythology because it definitely, there's a certain sort of star worship yeah. that gets attached to <laughs> stories like that. Yeah. And big actors want to be known by stories like that. Like Daniel Day-Lewis. Yes. Who gets nothing but praised for how he delves into a character and just becomes that character. And it just didn't work for Jared Leto. Yeah. Yeah. But I think at the end of the day, it's just that Tom Hardy is that good of an actor that he can turn it off, turn it on, and be able to do these multiple parts. Because... There has been at least one other movie about the Cray brothers. The one I'm thinking of, I think it's just called The Craze, and it's from the 1990s. I played the trailer over here while I was writing up my notes. And in that one, it's played by two actual brothers who are actors. Mm. And that's one thing, to be able to portray just one person in a relationship with another physical actor who has their own personalities that they're bringing to the table. But to have two fully fledged out people in one head that are just sharing this meat space, like, I can't get over how just great it is. Yeah. Now, I want to bounce back a little bit. When we were talking about Francis, we said that a lot of what Reggie was doing was from her perspective. And I have to wonder if that was by design, because I don't feel like we see a lot of the day-to-day -day criminal stuff that the brothers do. You're right. We don't. The criminal stuff that we see, generally speaking, is the stuff that leads to big changes. Mm -hmm. We get a lot of the stories behind how he acquired different businesses. And of course, to Francis, she would probably know how that happened. But the day-to-day -day things which tend to be the nastier things, she had no idea. And there are certainly exceptions to that, that there are a few scenes here and there where there's no way she would know those things. Yeah, we get but. one scene in particular where Ron has done something that's frustrating Reggie. Like, I think this one in particular was Ron wanted to get rid of the books guy, Payne. Mm -hmm. 
and Reggie was like, oh, Payne knows too much. And then he went through like man by man. Okay, do you know about this? You know about this? And he was listing off all of these different things that they do. And I'm sitting there listening to it and I'm like, we haven't seen any of this happening. This has all been behind the scenes, behind our backs as viewers. Yeah. Because all we've seen them do is extort a couple of people so they can get some clubs. Other than that, it's a couple of bar fights with other known thugs. There's not as much crime as I expected. <laughs> I expected a little bit more crime is all. I'm okay with that because instead of this being a crime drama, this was a family drama. Mm -hmm. This was more about relationships. Yes. The point of this movie was to examine the relationship mm -hmm. between Reggie and Ron, between Reggie and Francis, with a little bit of Ron and Francis mixed in. Which brings me to another thought I had. In our pre-movie discussion, I supposed that since the word legend is singular, one of them is going to be the legend and one of them is not. Mm -hmm. That's not really how it panned out, but... I think Reg is the main character. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's more about him than anybody else. Even though it is the pair of them, and they both were criminal masterminds, and they both went to jail, and they both had uh, surprising murders <laughs> in the movie. That was very equal. But all in all, I think the movie was about Reggie. Mm -hmm. You could almost argue that the course of this movie is Ron being, you know, a bit of a chaotic force and Reggie being the non-chaotic force. And over the course of the movie, Reggie goes over to Ron's side of things as far as going from control to chaos. That actually brings up something that I was kind of looking for a place to bring it up. There is another set of twins in history, and actually they were born in 1963. So they were being born like during this movie. Mm-hmm. And they were here in America. They were born in 1963. June and Jennifer Gibbons. Okay. Have you ever heard of them? No. Okay. So they were a pair of sisters. And their like nickname is the Silent Twins. They would only talk to each other. They had a very difficult time in school. They bounced around. I think, they oh, they were British. Okay. Yeah. So they bounced around from school to school. People trying to help them. They wouldn't speak English. They had a language just between the two of them, a, a variant of Creole. And there were attempts to separate them. When they were separated, they were just shut down. Mm -hmm. So as they grew up, one of them, and I, I don't know which one, would try to go away and like have a life. And the other one would just pull her back. And they ended up institutionalized. Jennifer Gibbons died in 1993. I believe June is still alive. And I think Jennifer might have killed herself. I'm not sure. And the craze reminded me a great deal of the Gibbon twins. Right, because Ronnie was unwilling to give Reggie up. I think that's the main source of friction between Ron and Francis, because Francis represented someone who was trying to pull Reggie away from the criminal life, and Ron loved the criminal life. Yeah, it was what he was good at, arguably. Yeah. There were times when he was fine, and there were times when he was not. He was a very good muscle he was not the best thinker because at the very beginning of the movie they explained that he's a bit schizophrenic yes <laughs> uh, the summary i read specified that it was a paranoid schizophrenia which when you're dealing in a criminal underworld a little bit of paranoia is probably healthy but 
a lot of paranoia with schizophrenia on top of it makes for a pretty loose cannon. Now, speaking of Ron being a loose cannon, that actually spins quite nicely into what was my favorite part of the movie. So we'll get to favorite bits right now. Going back and thinking about what we saw, my absolute favorite thing in this movie was when Reggie and Ron showed up to that bar that was supposed to be neutral ground. And it was full of thugs from, I think they were from the torture gang. Yeah. And they're like, oh, the bosses got held up. They can't come here. And Reggie's like just filling up a beer. And then Ron does this thing where he's got like, I think he's got the hammers are in his jacket and he's holding them out like, like guns. guns. And he's go- he goes off on this tirade about how he expected a proper shootout. And just like the way he was like, oh, like a Wild West film. And I was like, wait, this is great. That I really enjoyed that, too. They use that in the trailer, mm-hmm. and they definitely cut it up in a different way. Yeah. So when it actually came time to have that scene, it happened different in the movie than it did in my head. Uh, but that's what trailers do. They pick scenes apart, recreate them to tell the story that they need to tell in that moment for mm-hmm. the trailer. So, yeah, uh, yeah I, I really enjoyed that. And I love how Ron made a big show of storming out, and then all the goons look over at Reggie, and he's got them captivated. Because, A, they all want to beat him up. But also, he's, like, talking, and he's going through this whole thing. Meanwhile, Ronnie's sneaking back in through the front door, and he's got these two hammers, and Reggie pulls out his brass knuckles, and they just go to town on these guys. And it's a very triumphant moment with the two of them working together. And I think that's what I like so much about it. Yeah, it really shows the potential, what their crime syndicate could be if they could just work together. Mm Mm-hmm consistently what about you my favorite part of this movie was francis and reggie's first date oh yeah her outfit was spectacular (laughs) that like pantsuit thing it was really great and i loved reggie in his club and looking back on it having seen the entire film there's something pure about reg being in his club that night in that moment in that evening he was a club owner Mm mm-hmm And he is taking this woman to the club to impress her. But he's still the owner. He still has to behave like the owner. So he's greeting people as he goes in. He's making sure that people are having a good time. So he's very much in his element. And he's loving it. He's happy. Mm -hmm. That might be his happiest scene in the whole movie. And it's really a shame. And I really feel for Francis that it couldn't stay that way. Yeah. That his ambition took over and he wants this club and that club. And then there's all the seedy stuff underneath, which does come into play in that scene. We go meet Jack McVitie for the first time being stupid. And then one more thing about that scene that I really loved. When Reg had to go talk to Jack McVitie, he had one of his goons sit with Francis. Because nobody wants to sit alone Mm -hmm. at a table on this awkward first date. It was a fantastic, very considerate move. Yeah. I don't know if they talked at all or if he like bought her a drink or was friendly in any way. Maybe he just sat there and just nothing. But his presence, not leaving her alone, was very considerate. And I really liked it. I imagined that while Reggie was off doing his business behind closed doors, that the goon was like answering any sort of like trivia question like 
Francis would have made a comment about, oh, the tables or the chandeliers, and then the goon would have been like, oh, well, you know, those chandeliers or such and such a thing, or this is where Reggie found them or something like that. Yeah. Being like knowledgeable about the club they're in. Like if she commented about the music, he could talk about the band that was playing. That's kind of what I imagined was going on because we know that the waitress came and talked to Francis while Reggie was away because as soon as Reggie got back, the waitress was there with drinks. With drinks, yes. So either Reggie has a regular cocktail and the waitresses just bring it for him or Francis put in this order while she was waiting. Yeah. If I had to have a second favorite scene and it's like a bit bittersweet for me is the scene where Reggie shows up underneath Francis's window and he's got that bouquet of flowers and he's throwing those lemon sherbets at her window Mm -hmm. and he climbs up the drain pipe to propose to her. And it's, oh man, it's such a bittersweet scene because we know now what happens afterwards. Yeah. Man, he's so charming. Yeah. When Reggie wants to be charming, he can turn it on for sure. Unfortunately for Reggie, my least favorite thing in the movie is directly related to him. Do you want to go first? Mine too, and I suspect that it's the same thing. My least favorite scene is the party when Jack McVitie gets killed. Really? The whole party. The whole party. So it's right after Jack attempted to kill the bookie guy, Mm -hmm. Payne. He doesn't succeed. And then he arrives at the party and he's like all cheerful and full of himself. Oh, my God. He's Why? the worst hitman Why? ever. He knows that he failed. He is he's such a failure throughout the entire movie. And I don't know why Ron thinks to ask such a failure of an individual to try and carry out a hit. Yeah. But yeah, when you have failed to kill someone. Run. Don't show up looking for the other half of your money. Yeah. Then now is when you take the first half of your money and you leave the country because they are going to kill you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, he comes in and he's all cocky and things happen that actually I don't really remember. And then he. Oh, 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 okay, okay, okay. I remember. Um, He gets into it with Reg. Mm -hmm. And he actually says to Reg, don't take out what happened to Francis on me. And I was thinking in my head, this has nothing to do with Francis. You didn't kill the person you were supposed to kill, and instead he survived and immediately turned to the cops and is telling them everything. Yeah. Because you couldn't kill the guy that you said you would. They're all going down. This is absolutely about you, and Mm -hmm. you deserve to be killed. Yeah. So that just completely sets Reg off. And then the, the knifing. I had to look away. I was shocked. Yeah. By how violent that was because it was brutal it was incredibly brutal a level of brutality we had not seen no and and i think the ironic part is is that once reg got going he was taking out what happened to francis on jack he was just releasing all of his rage and his grief and his frustration and just all out on jack i was about to make a mad max reference (laughs) about how he was actually releasing his grief yeah it was gruesome Mm. yeah i actually really liked that scene because of how much of a release it was (gasps) my least favorite part of the movie was the scene where reggie came home was drunk antagonized francis down by the car and then went up to the apartment attacked and raped her that was just the most heartbreaking thing for me because i knew at that point he was completely irredeemable like there was no good left in him 
if he was willing to do that to someone that he at multiple points in this movie expressed real affection for. And like, yeah, he wouldn't give the life up for her, but never before that point had he ever laid a hand on her. True. And as soon as he started doing that, like my heart dropped and I was like, I hate seeing stuff like that in film, but this was based on a true story and stuff like that happens in real life all the time. Yeah. There's no getting away from it because you want to hide behind fantasy. It was really hard for me to see as a situation that's happening to Francis. It's really hard for me to see as, you know, Reggie doing these things because, yeah, up to that point in the movie, he was the quote unquote antihero hero ish. Mm -hmm. He's the protagonist is what I'm saying. Yes. Whereas, you know, the guys that are the cops are the antagonists against the gangster good guys. But that's when I knew it was all over. And so it was really rough. <laughs> I agree. It was. Yeah. But as we're rounding out towards the end, I guess there's nothing left to say. But what are your final thoughts on the movie? I think that this is a movie that deserves to be seen multiple times. I think there's a lot of nuance. And knowing the ending would make me see the beginning in a different way. Mm. And to see the journey that the three main characters take, I think there might be some more insight to be had there. So as much of a roller coaster as this movie is, I think I'll watch it again. Mm. I have to agree with you because I spent most of this time watching the movie focusing on Reggie and Ron was kind of an afterthought for me. So there is additional depths that you could plumb. My final thought on this movie is that it should be seen just because Tom Hardy does such a good job playing both roles. Like we've come from Mad Max Fury Road where he spent the entire time grunting and punching and it just was <laughs> not a good display of all that Tom Hardy can do. Whereas this makes up for it. The question I don't have an answer for is whether I would recommend this over Bronson. Oh, Oh, gosh. Okay. Yeah. I got to think about that for a second. Because we mentioned Bronson earlier when we were talking about Mad Max Fury Road because we had watched it. Uh, I think we originally intended on doing Bronson for a hiatus movie, but we were impatient. Yeah, we watched it too soon. We weren't ready. And that movie, if we were going to sit down and record an hour's worth of us talking about it, it needed to be fresh. Mm -hmm. So we lost our opportunity. If I had to recommend one or the other, I'd probably recommend Bronson. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, wow. That movie was just wow. Oh, I, uh, I think given the option, like if someone only had a couple hours to watch a movie and I had two discs to hand over the, to them, I'd probably hand them this movie over Bronson just because... There's more to see out of Tom Hardy's performance in this movie where, yes, he was sort of doing the dual role thing in Bronson where he was playing Bronson in real life and then Bronson on stage, mm -hmm. which was a whole lot of fun. But I feel like there's a bit more nuance in this performance and a bit more to like grasp onto. But I also do find it kind of funny that Tom Hardy just plays real life criminals in movies. Yeah. <laughs> on at least two instances. Yes. And then fake criminals in movies like Batman, uh, the Dark Knight <laughs> returns, return, Dark Knight returns. I don't know. I think we could do a whole nother hour just comparing and contrasting the two movies. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I chuckled to myself when Reggie was thrown in the cell at the end of the hall. Cause I was like, Oh, there goes Tom Hardy getting back into jail. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. <laughs> Anyway, that is it for us this time around. 
We have more hiatus stuff coming in the future, so keep an eye on the feed for that. And as for us, I guess, you know, nothing left to say, but... The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Legend is presented by Cross Creek Pictures, Working Title Films, and Anton. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link, join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for Legend. We'll see you next time.